We continue in our series in pursuit of peace, and and as was heard in the room, we are in full-blown Christmas season, holiday season, and it's a lot of fun. I know for me, perhaps for you too. I I know for me, I I get pretty excited right around Thanksgiving, may or may not be before Thanksgiving, but, but at least Thanksgiving, I get excited, and our family takes our regular house, as many of you probably do, and turns it into sort of a greenhouse with this, you know, evergreen tree that stands front and center, pine, you know, aroma invading every room of the house. And, and, and I love all of this. And, and I admit, I get, I get a little nostalgic. Anybody else get nostalgic around this time of year? Yeah, there's a few of you, some won't admit it. But, um, but, but it brings a little bit of extra joy to everyday life for me, and I, and I love that. And, and then the first week of December ends, and I start to get a little bit jittery a little bit stressed because I start thinking of all the shopping I have to do, the gifts I have to buy, the parties I have to, you know, put in my calendar. My parents are coming. I got to make plans. There's a school Christmas play, right, et cetera, et cetera. And that peace that kind of emerges at the beginning suddenly becomes sort of a, an OCD of sorts, an obsessive Christmas disorder, you know, kind of thing. And, and, and don't even think, if you have kids, don't even think about going to the mall. I mean, I know you might, but I don't, I don't really like to do that because, you know, you might get assaulted by an elf or something. I don't know. But, but you know, I, I know this is wrong, but in those moments, I wish I could just attach one of those leashes to my kids, you know? I know I'm not supposed to say that, but, but I wish I could in those crowded places. And, and, you know, they make them, you know, where they don't look like leashes. They just put fur on it or, uh, or, or make it look like a monkey and attach a leash to it. You know what I'm saying? You, you've seen these out, right? And, and, and they're cute, right, in some ways, but then you're like, no, but that's so wrong. And, you know, you're sort of torn. And, and, and the other day I met the Rose Gardens, which, thank you, Bay Area, that there are flowers growing in the middle of winter. It's pretty amazing. And, and I'm with Sherry and my kids, and suddenly we lose Holden, our youngest son. And we're like, where'd he go? We turn and look around. We don't know where he is. And of course, we start panicking a little bit, and we, we, we call him stealth because he'll just, like, disappear, you know, without the slightest noise. We're like, where'd he go, you know? And, and, and Holden, cute little guy, he can't talk yet, and so we lost him, and our, our nervousness is obviously escalating. Where is he? So Sherry and I split up. We go different directions, and we're just, you know, panicking is just increasing, and, and then finally, we see this little figure running over the hill down to us, you know, and I thought... I need a leash to attach to my kid in that moment. Now, thankfully, we aren't forced to walk around with a leash tied to our backs. But, but, but think about that image for a minute, because what stands out is how that child is tethered to their parent and how both are at peace, because it's impossible to become separated in all the chaos and the danger and the busyness that's all around If you can get past the image of what appears to be captivity, you can see that it's really about togetherness. And there's a passage of scripture I want us to look at this morning that speaks to this very idea. It's about both the separation that exists when we are not tethered to God and the togetherness that exists when we are. Strangely, There is something in us that wars against being tethered to God. This juxtaposition is seen clearly in what the Bible refers to in the contrast of the Israelites and the Gentiles. The Israelites were tethered to God. They were secure in his blessing and protection. The Gentiles were separated from God through the lack of being part of the covenant or the holy promise. 
In the Israelite, we see that fortunate child who's always near to his father's side. And in the Gentile, sadly, we see that unfortunate child who is distant from his father, alone in this world, without protection in this life or the next. And so we come to Ephesians chapter 2, and, and as you hear these words, picture the future of the Israelite versus the fate of the Gentile and what that must have meant to the people outside of this covenant relationship. Verse 11, we pick up from where we were last week in the first 10 verses, we now are at 11, and he says, therefore, Paul writes, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth are called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision. There's two different groups here, which is done by, the, by human hands, it says, parenthetically. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, <coughs> excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. When Paul mentions this term uncircumcision, he's referring to the separation and the drifting outside the love and the protection of God. The physical circumcision that originated with the Israelites and God in the Old Testament was symbolic of removing the flesh that inhibited full devotion to God. If we look back in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6, one place where God says, He will perform the circumcision, and the Lord your God will circumcise your heart, it says. So God does the heavy lifting, but this is also a joint effort between us and God. We pursue full devotion to God and likeness to his character. You see, God doesn't unilaterally create this perfect righteous character in us. We're in process of being made new, of, of our character forming, of, of us becoming the new person. And we build that character as we labor with God. <coughs> Excuse me. We work cooperatively with God, or, or collaboratively, you could say, generally over a period of time. And the Latin word for collaborate actually means to labor with, which is interesting. When Paul refers to the uncircumcised, he's reminding the Gentiles that even if they did their part in laboring with God, it wouldn't be enough. You can't earn your way into the covenant. You can't make yourself, by yourself, the people of God. This is the main point of the gospel, that we can never be enough. And as Ryan talked about last week in Ephesians 2, we will never be what we could or should be. We will never appease God, though we aspire to or strive to quite often. Not in our own power, not in our own abilities. But again, that's what makes the gospel so hopeful. So ultimately, God has to be the one, as Deuteronomy says, to circumcise the flesh, meaning that sinful part of us that creates this eternal obstacle or separation from his friendship and love. And in our day, we think of the term salvation, and we think we either embrace it, we have this choice to embrace it or reject it. We have the choice. But for the Gentiles, prior to Christ's coming and his atonement, they didn't have this choice. Even if they wanted to choose salvation at the time Paul's writing this, they were unable to because they were the uncircumcised. And if this still appears to be a dim kind of picture, well, it was to them too, and it's why Paul speaks to this issue. 
And so Paul continues, and we go from verse 11 to verse 12. The words roll out with this dismal tone. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners or strangers to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in this world. Paul gives this pretty comprehensive description in terms of being an all-in-one verse. He reminds his audience of when they had no knowledge of Christ, no interest in him, no connection or life or blessing that come in connection, you know, come with him. And in essence, Paul, in this one verse, points out five things. First, he says they were excluded from citizenship in Israel. They were excluded from the, from the condition of citizenship, including a country, a constitution, a divinely appointed and divinely administered economy, rich in blessing. They were excluded. Second, they were foreigners to the covenants of the promise. So in their context, at that time in history, circumcision was the seal but it was not for the Gentiles. They, they weren't part of that. They weren't Jewish. They were the uncircumcised. They were foreigners and thus not included in the covenant promise, the promise that God originated in Abraham. Remember Genesis chapter 12 where God said to Abraham, I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you I will curse and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Well, the Gentiles weren't part. They weren't included there. The new covenant hadn't come yet, hadn't been revealed through Christ. And then third, Paul says the Gentiles were, quote, without hope. They were without hope. They, they had no grounds for really looking forward to a better tomorrow. To, to, they had no reasonable expectation of improvement in their spiritual condition. And then fourth, he says, not only were they without hope, but they were without God in the world. And this isn't in the active sense, like they chose to be without God. It's in the passive sense of being disconnected from God. They, they didn't have the, the friendship or the favorability with God that, that the Jewish people had. They were without any vital nexus that would bring into their soul the fullness of God, of which they longed for greatly. And then fifth, we see the words in the world, which intensify really the phrase without God, I mean, it was bad enough to be without God, but they're without connection and fellowship with him in this world that can be evil. In this world, we're often the God of this world, world rules. So wrapped in this one verse is this pretty comprehensive five-fold description, which of course has this cumulative effect on the Gentiles and where they're at. And the situation has these grave implications. This comprehensive, all-encompassing reality lands at the door, lands the Gentiles at the door of despair. They're standing on the outside of all the blessing, all the goodness, all the promises of God. They are without God, without hope, morally, spiritually, relationally, eternally. They are separated, the created, are separated from their creator. Like the child who is adrift and alone in a dangerous and chaotic world. And this sense of being adrift reminds me, a number of years ago, Sherry and I uh, did a tour through Italy. And, and this was really fun for me, being an Italian, number one, among other reasons. And, and so we started off through Italy, and um, and this was the first time really in our marriage that, that we found ourselves in this place where we totally didn't fit in. I mean, we felt like foreigners. 
And I know, you know, we, we went in there and we go, yeah, some people will speak English, so we should be fine. We had our little Italian, you know, you know book that translated things to try to communicate. You know, we looked like idiots pretty much. But, um, but we thought, okay, they, they speak enough English and people did. But as we started to talk to them, we, it felt like people were just kind of pushing us off. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm a fellow kinsman here, Saccone, right, Italian. Like, you should treat me right. I didn't say that. But, you know, I, I'm like, come on. You know, and they were just kind of pushing us off. I'm not really sure why. I know I sound pretty cynical and you wouldn't have those thoughts. But that's what we were experiencing. And then we get up one day, and we're in Rome, and the metro is shut down. And we're like, why is it shut down? There's a ghost town at the train station. We're like, what's going on? We didn't know why. We didn't know it was going to start back. And all our plans were contingent on us getting around on the train. And so we started asking people. You know, we probably asked five, six people. Uh, They were not helpful. I'll just summarize it by saying that. And we just realized, okay, we have to get on with it. We have to figure it out ourselves. And And we did the best we could. And, uh, and, and we sort of figured it out. And, and then at the end of our trip, we, we get to Milan. And in the planning, this was our last night. And in the planning, we didn't actually book a hotel room because we thought, oh, this is a large metropolitan, uh, metropolitan area. We, and by we, I mean me. Uh, we, we, we didn't book a room for that night. We just thought we'd get off the train. We'll find a place. There'll probably be hotels everywhere. Yeah, this is me, a window into my world. Sometimes how I think idealistically. But anyhow, so, so we start walking around from hotel to hotel, and we quickly find out that there's a massive, I mean, like massive uh, convention in Milan. I mean, who knew, right? And somebody said there's multiple ones, I think, because there's no room to be found in this entire city. We're like, ah, that guy's not, you know, accurate. We'll find one. We actually find a room a couple hotels later, but it was like hundreds of dollars. We're like, no, 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 we can't do that. We'll find one. So we kept pushing through, and eventually it's, you know, dark, it's cold, it's late, and we're just like, let's just go back to that other hotel. And, and we go back, and of course that room's gone too. <laughs> And so, you know, and, and, and picture us, or we had these huge backpacks on, we're, we're, we're touring and hiking through, through Italy, and, and so we're carrying these things, and we're hungry, and we're tired, and we're discouraged, and, and I'm thinking, you know, I'm the, the new husband here, and I'm thinking, you know, this is not going well, she may, you know, bail soon, I don't know, <laughs> probably regretting things at this moment, um, what a man I married, you know, and, any, so, and I can't fix it, and I'm, and I'm thinking, okay, she's going to fall, you know, she's going to be, like, tearful, her back is starting to ache, so she, she turns her backpack, Sherry does, turns her backpack around and starts wearing it on the front, you know, to kind of save the back. And we start walking, and I'm just, like, upset and multiple reasons selfishly, but for her. And anyway, I'm thinking she's going to cry and just, like, lose it, right? It's been several hours of just, like, you know, can't find anything. We're thinking we're going to sleep on a bench somewhere, and it's cold out, and have to get our plane the next day. And then Sherry jokingly says, I feel like Mother Mary, <laughs> carrying a baby, right? And there's no place at the inn for me. You know, where are, where are the people? Where's the barn? I'll take a barn right now is kind of what she's thinking, you know? And, and we sort of had this moment, at least we're in it together. And, and I remember that very vividly, that, that experience. And the thing is about us, that most of us are out of touch with this feeling of being on the outside, much like we were feeling in that moment a foreigner adrift and alone in a strange land, cut off from home and heart. And the truth is that when you do experience this, it's unsettling. If you felt insecure before, you now realize how secure you actually were in your home territory. Imagine how the Gentiles felt. They were, li- they were literal foreigners in the Old Testament, but presently they are symbolic foreigners too. 
And as they look upon a life they could never have, they find that the past holds no peace, the present holds no peace, the future holds no peace for them. Because of the, she- of the sheer aloneness, the overwhelming sense of hopelessness and inadequacy, and the pervasive feeling that you are cut off from love and goodness and truth presently and permanently. And if the story ended there, how tragic it would be. For the Gentiles, this is the only ending they knew, which is why Paul is writing this. And then in verse 13, when he moves from verse 12 to verse 13, there's a massive shift. There's this little clause, but now. But before I, before I read that again, <clears throat> insert a passage from Old Testament that talks of this same shift, Isaiah chapter 14. It's a prophecy. And it says, but the Lord will have mercy on the descendants of Jacob. He will choose Israel as his special people once again. He will bring them back to settle once again in their own land and people from many different nations, that's the Gentiles, that's us, by the way, will come and join there and unite with the people of Israel. And then in the New Testament, Jesus echoes the same shift in John chapter 10, verse 16. I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice, and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. And then we get to Ephesians 2, verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, you Gentiles, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. There's this significant clause there, but now. The verbal, this is the verbal antithesis that completely reverses the picture that went before it. But now we can be with God. And when we live with God, that means we can live with hope. Though without Christ of verse 12 is a contrast with the in Christ of this verse. Jesus came to earth to save his people from their sins. The sins that have separated them and alienated them, made them feel like foreigners and strangers The the sins that made them dead spiritually, he came to make them alive spiritually, to bridge the chasm of separation caused by sin. Jesus came so that we could be intimately linked, tethered to God. You who were once far off have now become near through the blood of Christ. The promise for us today is that we don't have to live distant from God. And that's a powerful reality, a life-changing one, actually. God is offering us, all of us, no one excluded, something that we often don't fully access, to be near to him, to experience then all that emerges from that nearness, the blessing, the freedom, the joy, the creativity, the love, the protection, the peace, and the list goes on and on. Paul guides us from this metaphor of moving from death to life spiritually, and then he takes us into this new one, and it's the contrast of distance and nearness. And he's talking about spiritual distance primarily. You who were far off from God's favor and fellowship and connection, you were at a distance from his gracious pardoning and renewing grace. You have now been brought near. And God has become your heavenly father. Your orbit 
has been changed to a near and blessed position where the light of God's countenance now shines upon you. And you see this but now phrase? It's the difference between darkness and light, hope and despair, peace and chaos, shame and forgiveness, aloneness and togetherness, distance and nearness. No wonder the movement of Jesus Christ became an unstoppable force. The good news no longer applied only to the Israelites, the circumcised. It was for the Gentiles as well, the lost and wandering child who's unable to find his home. And imagine the dots that began to connect in the minds and the hearts of the Israelites. They may face trials and pain in this life, disappointment, discouragement, and we all will. But now, Paul says, they had reason to hope What was once no more than a fairy tale was now a reality. And it didn't come through a distant God who was far off. It came by God becoming human flesh. And he came for us. He came to walk among not just the Jews, the Israelites, but to walk among the Gentiles, to walk among us. It was a God who served and loved the Gentiles, who who at the time were a people that were on the outside, separated from God, distant from God. And God said, no, I want you to be near and I'm going to make a way for you. Jesus came for them. And Jesus came for us. And in no other religion in the world did something like this happen, ever. We are all Gentiles that have at times felt like foreigners, not at home. And it's only in Jesus that we ultimately find hope. Which begs the question, what what is hope? Hope is, in essence, that feeling of expectation and desire for a certain thing to happen. We know what hope is. And human beings, you and I the same, have a tremendous capacity for hope. But what we hope for are things that although might not happen, can happen. I mean, we don't hope for aliens to come down and teach us how to fly, right? Because that's pretty much impossible. What we hope for ultimately is a redeemer to come down and to teach us how to live. And that is possible. And it happened. And that hope is available to us. We hope that one day all the pain and tears and sorrow will be wiped away and that we'll go to spend eternity with God in heaven forever. Hope is believing there's a better tomorrow. And then you ask, how can we hope with certainty? That's the questioning that happens with some. Well, it depends on the size and strength of your God. Can our God bring a better tomorrow? For followers of Jesus, we can have confidence in putting our hope in God Because it's our God that came to this earth and conquered our greatest fear, death. And that alone gives us certainty of hope. The real hope is offered to us in Jesus Christ. Hope that in facing our greatest fear, God will show up and be enough for us. Hope that amidst the beautiful and terrible things happening in our world and everything in between, that God loves us and will still be with us no matter what. Hope that our humdrum go to the grocery store lives actually matter. Hope was born in a manger. Hope died on the cross. And hope left neatly folded linen cloths in a stone tomb. 
And I don't know about you, but I'm so grateful that hope is alive today. And with this hope, what comes with that is a gift that no one else can give, a gift we all long for, a gift we all need, and it's, it only comes through God himself. It is peace. It is peace. A peace that can run deep, deep in our soul. A peace that only comes because we realize that through Jesus Christ and him alone, that things have been made right again, and one day will be made fully right. And when we hold on to this hope with a residing faith in who Jesus is and what he did for us and what is to come, that's when we find peace that surpasses all understanding. I love what Isaiah 26, 3 says about peace. It says this, you will keep in perfect peace, God, you will keep in perfect peace all who do what? All who trust in you, all whose thoughts are fixed on you. That hope and that peace is made available to you and me who trust in God and the future he promises. That peace can be real to you and can be experienced in your heart today as we trust in what Christ promises and walk in that. According to the Bible, you can walk in the present with a peace that surpasses understanding. But it only comes when you enter into a relationship with Jesus and you continue to abide in him, or in other words, walk near to him, access the nearness that he's made possible. And for some here this morning, you walk in that future peace. You've experienced it. You taste it. And it's transformed the way that you live. For others... Perhaps you don't know this peace. Perhaps maybe you've tasted it some, but don't find yourself living it. It feels elusive to you. Or some in the room perhaps have never said, yes, Jesus, I want to follow you. I want to trust in who you are and what you've done for me and the promise of what's ahead. Peace is available to you when you say yes to Jesus and then walk in that. And we have that choice, if we're not followers of Christ, to begin to follow and trust in him. If we are followers of Christ, we have a part. It just doesn't magically come to us. God says, no, I want you to live and abide in me, connect to me, be in fellowship and and community with me, and that peace will reside in your heart. And, And the question is, how do we attain that hope? Sometimes we live in that tension and that peace, and then how do we maintain it in everyday life? And I, I love this sort of old joke of this man begging God for help because he's financially destitute. You may be familiar. John, we'll call him, who was in financial difficulty. He walked into a church and he started to pray and he said, listen to God. He said, listen, God, sorry. He said, listen, God, I know I haven't been perfect, but I really need to win the lottery. I don't have a lot of money. Please help me out. He left the church. A week went by and he hadn't won the lottery, so he walked into another church. Come on, God, he said, I really need this money. My mom needs surgery and I have bills to pay. Please let me win the lottery. He left the church, a week went by, and he didn't win the lottery, so he decides to go to a chapel, and he started praying again. You're starting to disappoint me, God. I've prayed and prayed. If you just let me win the lottery, I'll be a better person. I don't have to win the jackpot, just enough to get me out of debt. I'll give some to charity even. Just let me win the lottery. And John thought this did it. He was confident. So he got up, and he walked outside, and the clouds opened And the voice, this booming voice came and said, my son, oh, my son, John, please, please go buy a lottery ticket. (laughs) 
right? And, and, and it's a funny reminder that, that, that it's a joint effort, that we have to be active laborers with God, a co-laborer, a collaborator. So yes, God does the heavy lifting, but he's inviting us to say yes to him, to, to, to pursue full devotion to him and likeness in Christ, to connect him. And what we often lack the foresight to see is that when we trust God, follow his lead, release what he has asked us to release, the outcome is peace. When we stop clinging to what our flesh craves, instead cling to what our spirits crave, ultimately connection with Jesus, we will begin to be mercifully freed from the worldly worries and anxieties. There's something we all know deep down, that our humanity cannot be separated from spirit. If our hope is in this world, in what we can accomplish on our own, in our own efforts to appease God or be everything we could or should be, if our hope is in whatever physical protection we can secure, our spirits will remain separated from Christ, from our Creator. And we will be alienated from God and from the future peace we need and long for. We can interface with the world as we are physically tethered to it, But we cannot interface with the spiritual if we're not tethered to its source of life, God. We may show incredible survival skills in this world because of our human persistence and attachment to this earth, but we can't survive if our souls are without attachment to Jesus Christ, to who he is and to what he promises us one day. And like the child tethered to his watchful mother or father, we're able to enjoy a peace that surpasses all circumstances, all fears, and all else that seeks to pull us away from our father who loves us so much that he broke the rules and opened his holy covenant to every wanderer and foreigner, to every misfit and every ragamuffin, to every unloved creature in this world. We may not be able to hold on to many things, wealth, or health, or marriages, or careers, or even life itself. But what we can hold on to is the hope that we have in Christ. And with that link so unbreakable, we can hold on to peace. Be tethered to God and be tethered to peace. And that peace is what we will experience when we really find our hope in Christ alone. Our future, your future, is tied to the Father's future, to what he will do one day, that he will bring us home, that he will make it all right again. And we don't have to live feeling lost or in despair because we are eternally tethered to God when we step into a relationship with Jesus Christ. And we, if we let all things fade in light of this truth, imagine the boundless trust for God that we would experience Thus, the peace that would come. Imagine the joy that would hold fast because we're no longer chasing after worldly security. We're chasing after what's already ours to receive, salvation. Will you pray with me? I don't know where all this lands for you this morning. Perhaps there are a few in the room that are still pondering whether Jesus is who they believe in and, and, and trust. My encouragement to you is to say, if you long for that peace, say yes to Jesus. 
You don't have to have all the answers, but there may be an inkling of your, in your heart and say, yes, Jesus, I want to follow you. I want to trust you. For others of you, you may feel in despair. Maybe you're a follower of Jesus, but, but you long for that peace that's been talked about this morning. And you want it and you long for it. And my encouragement to you is to grab on to Jesus, is to seek after him, pursue him, walk in him every day. And I assure you, peace will come because that's his promise, not mine. God, we pause in this moment And one of the most incredible things about our creator, about you, God, is that your spirit is at work in all of us individually and uniquely. And God, some of us come in this room without hope, perhaps in a really desperate place. And I pray right now in this moment, you would infuse hope into that person. Fill them with hope. Remove their despair. Give them a faith and a courage to trust in you. God, for others of us who who just need to cling to you, Jesus, perhaps we're reminded of our lacking in connection to you and we started to connect the dots of hope and peace this morning. Some might feel at a distance from God, from you, Jesus, and I pray you would draw us near. Your promise to us is that if we draw near to you, you will draw near to us. Thank you for making a way in Jesus. Thank you for offering us hope, hope eternal, a future peace that comes with that hope. Fill us with hope. Connect us with Jesus. Provide the peace that surpasses all understanding. Help us to walk in that as individuals and as a church. We pray this all in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen.